Good morning. Yeah, my name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church, and it's really good to be here and to be with you. There's a lot going on today, right? It's Father's Day. It's Juneteenth. A lot of things to celebrate, a lot of things that are causes for reflection and thought. And those things kind of foreshadow what we as Christians do every Sunday, which is we celebrate, we gather on the Lord's Day, and we reflect, and we also anticipate a better future. And so all of that points to, all of these celebrations point to what we ultimately do every Sunday, which we know as the Lord's Day. And so thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of worship service here. Um, I've got a few announcements for you guys before we jump in and continue our series in Hebrews. Um, first is our wonderful worship team is in need of some musicians. And also, if you've led worship before, we would invite you to contact Johnny and let him know because he would love to kind of bring you onto the team. Specifically, we're looking for people who play keys or bass, or if you've previously led worship before. Please contact Pastor Johnny, who's leading worship today, um, and he will be able to kind of walk you through the next steps. Secondly, the last Thursday of this month, June 30th, we are doing Abide. So Abide is simply just a place where we open our doors of this church um, and this sanctuary to pray. And so it's a good time to just come and to pray, pray for people, to receive prayer, to just spend a little bit of time with the Lord um, in the middle of the week. So it's from 6.30 to 7.30, and so please join us for that on June 30th. Next is Foundations is coming up in July, the middle of July, so July 15th and 16th. So one of the things that we've done is we've had to kind of readjust to life with two full-time staff pastors as opposed to three, since, you know, Jason went down to that church we prayed for. Um, And so one of the things that I'm actually really excited about is a change in foundations. Instead of doing it four consecutive weeks after church on a Sunday, We're going to switch back to doing it how we used to do it way back in the day, which is we're going to have dinner at um, one of the pastor's house or one of the members' houses on Friday night um, and just kind of spend some time getting to know each other. And then the very next day, that Saturday, we're going to meet here and go through kind of all of the teaching material, presenting to you kind of like the main beliefs of the church. And so that's going to be like a four and a half hour marathon session, but it's really good, really sweet time. Both of those are going to be a great way to get to know Portico as a church a little bit better. And so if you're new, if you're visiting, that's a way to kind of just understand more about the church itself and what we believe. And it's also our pathway to membership. So if you've been here and you're like, yeah, I want to belong here. I want to be part of this church then membership is the way to do that. And so this is our pathway to membership. So please register for that. Space is limited because of the dinner. Um, And so go ahead and jump on that while you have the chance. All right, that's all the announcements I've got for you guys. Let's continue to go through Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. So getting out of chapter 1 this morning into chapter 2. And I just want to thank... um, Elder Andrew Owen for preaching last week. It was really great. I love hearing from um, all the other elders and pastors here at this church, and especially the guys who are bivocational, who work another job, and have the calling of being an elder here. Um, They just bring something that's really important. And so I'm glad that you guys got to hear from him, and he did a great job of kind of showing you the author 
taking these great lengths to show us, the audience, that Jesus is better than the angels. And as Andrew kind of pointed out, it's like, okay, did, did anybody have like a problem with that beforehand? Like, did we, did you really need convincing? It's like, maybe not, but you probably also have not seen an angel. And so if you had seen an angel, you probably would have required a little bit of convincing because it's this messenger from God that is shrouded in glory. And so there's something glorious about the angels that is even just a shadow, a small representation of the glory of the sun, the glory of this eternal sun that the author of Hebrews is starting to kind of develop. And so, so far, Hebrews has been very theological. It's been saying a lot of things and referencing the Old Testament to show who God is as he is expressed in the person of the Son. And so today is a little bit of an interruption. And it's almost kind of like a record scratch moment in the flow of the book because it's super high theology talking about angels and all of a sudden the author is talking to the audience directly. And he says, therefore, you. And so today we can receive this as something that the author wants us to hear as well. Something that God wants us to hear. And it's something that we need to hear. And here's why we need to hear it. We need to hear it because part of the human condition is a restlessness. It's kind of a drifting soul. And we drift in a few different ways. You can drift very subtly and gradually. You can drift with a very gentle, imperceptible current that takes you away from the shore. Or you can drift very violently, very suddenly. And here is some, here how we do this today. You might, this is very abstract so far. We get very distracted in our lives about what is ultimately important. It's very easy for us, all people, to lose sight of what has ultimate importance. Even as we kind of remember Hebrews 1 talking about the supremacy of the Son and how glorious and grand and huge that is, it's almost too big. And so we're like, mm, I can't really control that. Something about it makes me uncomfortable. And so I'm going to go to something that I can control. I'm going to go to something that soothes me, that gives me comfort. And so maybe we take kind of like a little bit of pleasure or we find comfort in the gradual current. Maybe we're okay with drifting. I know for me, I am. Like there's something nice about just kind of letting go and not fighting the current anymore. I'm tired, aren't you? Resisting temptation is hard. Living the Christian life is hard. Believing, trusting, resting in an invisible God is hard. It's not easy. And so remember, Hebrews is writing in the language of an epic journey that all of us are on. And it's specifically written to early Christians who are being pulled out of a primarily Hebrew, Greco-Roman context and culture, relationships, 
friendships, communities, and establishing this new enterprise of the Christian church. And it's hard for them, right? They've, they've left people behind. They've been exiled by friends. They miss those people. Like, man, wouldn't it just be easier if I just go back and worship like them? All my problems would be fixed. I could be at home again. And we feel this same pull. We feel this same tension in our own lives. And that is that feeling of restlessness. Our hearts want peace. They want harmony. They want rest. And today, what we're going to see is the author is going to use language of um, a ship at sea, a ship drifting, to describe the experience of our soul. And what we're going to see is the only thing that can anchor our soul is the Son and his gospel. That's what we're going to look for this morning. So please read with me in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, just handling these first four verses. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Um, God, there are things in here that we would probably rather not hear, that we would probably rather not read, that upset us, that ask questions of us. And yet you have put these in here for our good, Lord, for our protection, for our security. And so, God, I ask that we would come this morning with that posture as people who are in need of your word, who are in need of these warnings, people who need to be reminded of our tendency to drift. Lord, and we ask that you would, um, this morning, that you would anchor us by your Son, that we would trust you for that, that we would rest there, that That is the only place where we can find true and lasting rest. And so, Lord, work on us by your Spirit, through your Word, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the text this morning is one of these warning texts that Hebrews is somewhat famous for. The author of Hebrews calls this letter, it's really a sermon, a word of exhortation. And so, there's a lot of teaching in it, But the teaching always serves the purpose of these exhortations, of these kind of commands, these urgings that the author has. And so anytime it gets super practical, that is what the exhortation is. Anytime where the author kind of pauses and then addresses the audience very personally and directly, that's what's going on there. He's exhorting them. And that's the whole purpose of the letter. And so it's good to slow down and to pay close attention to these exhortations, because they are the whole point of the letter. He's not just trying to build up their knowledge. He's actually trying to apply it to their lives. 
so that they're changed, so that they are um, persevering, so that they finish the race, finish the epic journey, ultimately. And so this morning, we learned some, um, this is kind of like the first exhortation, the first one of these, and we learned some very important things that are going to be kind of developed as the letter unfolds. Um, The first is that our souls are adrift, that we are adrift. The second is that we are drifting towards destruction. And then finally, that it's only the gospel that can anchor our souls. So our souls are adrift, we're drifting towards destruction, and only the gospel can anchor our souls. These are all kind of introduced here in these four, four verses, and then they get developed in much more detail in the other exhortations as the letter goes. So this is just kind of an introduction to these exhortations. So if you leave and you're like, I don't think I quite get it, that's good. Like, there's more to come. You will get it. Like, keep going in the letter of Hebrews, just as we will. So first, our souls are adrift. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So this little introductory verse is... um, it's deeply personal because it's written by somebody who knows these people. There's a context here that we don't have a ton of insight to. We don't know how they're drifting. Like, is it through how they're living? Is it through what they're teaching or believing? We don't know. What we know is that they are adrift. And so the author intends his audience to know that they're adrift. Because one of the things that can happen when you're adrift is that you don't even realize it. Because the boat, this, again, this is language of a ship at sea or a nautical language. And what can happen is the boat is moving very slowly with the current. You know, it's like that phenomenon of if you're in a swimming pool and you're on a raft and you're lying on your back on a raft. All of a sudden, you're at the other end of the pool, and you didn't even realize that you were moving. And that same thing happens at sea. And it's incredibly devastating for those boats because all of a sudden, your course is completely diverted. And trying to get back on course is a huge pain. And so what the author is trying to do, he's, kind of sh- he's using these, this language to shake up the audience because this isn't like common language. It's very technical language that would be talking to sailors. What he's trying to do is he's trying to communicate to them. He's trying to warn them, you are adrift. You're drifting. And we need this warning too. This is part of the human condition. It's part of our hearts, the restlessness of our souls, is that we are kind of adrift in a gravitational pull of rebellion and selfishness since the garden. It's represented by Adam and Eve rejecting God's plan for them and wanting to define good and evil on their own. And that nature, that sinful nature gets passed to us and we receive it and we live in it. And so we have that same tendency to want to reject what God defines as good and evil and say, we're going to make that up ourselves. We are going to be the authors of that. And in some ways, you can see the appeal of it. You're your own king. That's ultimately what that means. You are God. 
And so that drifting, that trajectory, ultimately has replaced God, who's the author and the creator. It's exchanging the glory of the Son that's greater than the angels for your own glory. Glory on your own terms. And so he wants you to know that this drift happens to all of our souls. And here's a couple of ways, I already kind of referenced it, but here's a couple of ways that I think we are at drift. I'm speaking from my personal experience, but also just knowing you guys. So one of the ways where we drift is through comfort. We want our comfort. This can be physical comfort, it can be social comfort, it can be interpersonal comfort. We want to live a life where everything's smoothed out, everything's easy. And so one of the ways that we drift away from God at the center of our lives is we place that comfort as kind of our decision maker. We're like, oh, but that's going to make me uncomfortable. So I'm not going to do that. Having that conversation with that person will make me uncomfortable, so I'm going to avoid it. Entering into um, a proclamation of who Jesus is with my coworker, that's going to make them uncomfortable, might make me uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. And so we just go with wherever we find comfort. And so all of a sudden, when we think about Jesus and the reality that he calls his disciples into discomfort, we kind of are like, hmm, probably be better if I just go with this gentle current. It's good there. We also find a ton of comfort in just enjoying life, don't we? Like for the most, for the most part, I know that everybody has issues, but for the most part, living here in our general kind of age bracket, everything about this city is designed for being a young 20 or 30-something. Everything. And so it's really fun. It's really enjoyable. And it can be really distracting because we're just entertained all the time. We are enjoying things all the time. And so we can start to just go with that, and it's fun. And I'm not saying that enjoying yourself is a bad thing, right? That's one of the tricky things of this very subtle drift, is it can be a drift with a good thing like having fun. But all of a sudden, it becomes the current. It becomes the direction of your life. You start making decisions based on your enjoyment of something. And there's going to be things that Jesus calls you to do that are not going to be enjoyable. There just are. Another way that this happens, and this is a, probably more... Um, obvious, at least in some ways, is that we, so that's comfort, kind of like a general category, but there's also control. So we drift when we seek something we can control. And you could also identify these as like false anchors. So things that you think are going to keep you from drifting, 
shelters in the storm that are not the gospel, that are not Jesus. Money is a really good one. If the first thing that you do is try and solve problems with money, you're drifting. That is not an anchor that can hold you. It's not an eternal anchor, and yet your soul will cling to it, will attach yourself to it. And all of a sudden, you start solving all of your problems. The fact that you're drifting, you're like, oh, money can fix that. So a dissatisfaction with your soul. Like if I just had a little bit more money, then I would be content. A problem in a relationship. If I just had a little bit more, then we'd be happy. Another one of the control um, kind of category of drifting is with family. Like family is something that we can control. At least we think we can. And it's something that seems like it's anchoring us. It seems like it will sustain us. It seems like it'll get us through hardships. We find comfort in it. And again, listen, these are good things. They're not bad things of themselves, but when you are anchoring your hope, your soul to them, you're drifting. And that's the second thing that we're going to see in this text is that the drifting is towards destruction. So any drift that you experience is a drift towards destruction. Verse 2, Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So here is what he's talking about here. The author is talking about the receiving of the Mosaic Covenant when Moses went up on Sinai and received the Ten Commandments and the rest of the covenant stipulations that are part of the covenant that he was administering. It was declared to Moses by angels. He's referencing that event as they're retold in Deuteronomy in this passage. So what we have to remember here is that this message declared by angels, which angels are not as good as the sun, we remember that from chapter 1, it's a shadow it's just a sign. It's pointing in the direction of the new covenant of Jesus' mediation, of the message that he is communicating. That old covenant is just a sign of that new covenant. And in the old covenant, you see this giving of the law. You see this reestablishing that God does with his people of like, here is what is good. And here's what is evil. He's communicating to them afresh what he first communicated in the garden. He's trying to reestablish himself as the author of good and evil in this covenant. And the beautiful thing about it, the beautiful thing about this covenant is like 90% of it is what to do when you break that. It's showing you how to atone for sins. It's giving you instructions for how you should make yourself right with God through taking advantage of his provision in that covenant. 
And so that, is, that was the controlling um, kind of center of the Jewish life after Moses gave that covenant to the people is that they were trying to establish the temple, trying to establish the priesthood, trying to establish their whole system of worship so that they would be God's people in God's land. And a huge part of that was if you neglect this, if you don't listen to it, there's punishment. And the punishment kind of took two forms. It, the two forms it took were exclusion, so basically separating yourself from the rest be, so that it wouldn't spread. And it also included destruction. It also included death. And we hear that, and it sounds harsh. And the harshness is a reflection of the severity of the disease that it was diagnosing. The harshness was not because God is a harsh God. It's because our rebellion led us to destruction, and it wasn't going to stop on its own, without the intervention of God, without him graciously interceding. It was destroying us. And so even in this sign of the new covenant, this old sign that's pointing towards the fulfillment, there was a destruction that was foreshadowed. And so think about it this way. This is the argument that the author's trying to make. If you were going to visit the Grand Canyon and you saw a picture of it, kind of on like, I think it's on Arizona's welcome signs maybe. I don't know. Just pretend it is. Grand Canyon State, welcome. There's a picture of the Grand Canyon. If you stopped your car and just kind of looked at the sign, you're like, wow, and just stayed there and camped out there, that would be weird. It's just a sign. Like there's something else. There's a substance. But the sign is communicating something true. And so what the author is saying here is this sign of the old covenant is communicating to you something that is true of the new covenant. And it's much more true when the substance of the sign is actually here. And so what he's saying to us is that this is, this is the Savior, one and only. There's no more Savior after him. And so if you neglect the salvation that he offers, that he brings, if you don't pay attention to it, if you drift away from it, it leads you to an abyss. And there's nothing else that can save you. There's nothing else that can anchor you to the eternal God. So pay attention. And those things in the Old Testament, when we read of the commands to stone people for violating, it's communicating, it's a sign of the perilous journey that we're on as we're adrift. Because we're letting go of the eternal God. And it's basically like, I, I was thinking about this, um, the scene, I think it's in that movie Gravity, where they're in space and like, you know, they like start spinning and they're going away from each other and they're trying to grab on. But that's essentially what the author is communicating. 
is like if you disconnect yourself from the gravitational pull of the eternal God, there's nothing but abyss. So pay attention to it. Prioritize it. Don't get distracted. Don't get pulled away. Anchor yourself to him. So the the rest of this passage, how he answers that kind of hypothetical question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He describes the gospel and the painstaking lengths that God goes to make the gospel plain to us. So the first thing that he says is that this gospel, this message of salvation, this great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord. So now we're seeing the author start to do something that he's going to continue to do. This eternal son was the Lord Jesus. The gospel message was declared by the eternal son who came and lived and walked among us. It was made visible. Jesus showed up on the human stage. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He taught us, he taught his disciples, he taught people, not only by what he taught them and said to them, but by how he lived, he showed it. His entire life was a demonstration of that salvation. It was a demonstration of what it looks like to live a life before God. But it was also declared by his death, by showing the world, the universe, the cosmos, that he was the way back to God. He wasn't just kind of a role model for us, but he was actually the way. He was the perfect lamb. He was the one true only sacrifice. And he declares by his resurrection that he still lives, that there's nothing else because he is alive, and he continues to minister to this day at the right hand of the Father. Again, this is just introducing this. This is huge. We're going to get there in Hebrews, but it's just showing you. Jesus declared it. So the author is showing us, like, God went through lengths, great lengths, to declare this message, to give it to us. It was then attested by those who heard. So this is referencing the apostles and the ministry that the apostles had. So these were the people that were commissioned after Jesus' death and resurrection by Jesus, who Jesus poured the Spirit out on to go and start laying the foundation for the church by preaching the word, by spreading the word, by preaching this gospel message, by continuing it. And then it gets written down. So the first part of that attestation by the apostles was them proclaiming it. And then it gets written down and codified in the word for us. And it's attested to by their ministry. That message that they heard directly from Jesus is the same message that we read in our scriptures. It's trustworthy. God went through a painstaking detail to make sure that we could trust this message, that it is the message 
that was declared by Jesus. It's not a different message. Jesus didn't do one thing and the Bible say another. It's the same thing. It's attested to by those who heard, by the apostles. More than that, verse 4, God himself bore witness to their apostolic ministry. And you can read this in Acts. You can read this in a lot of Paul's letters as he references it. But the message of the apostles was accompanied by miracles, by signs, by supernatural activity. And that is God entering in and bearing witness that this is the message that you heard from Jesus that is now being declared to you that God is light, that there's no darkness in him. And that by trusting and resting in that son, in that eternal son, who is the exact imprint of God, you are in the light, that you can be saved, that you can trust in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and be joined to him, be brought into his kingdom. And it's the fulfillment of, of the promise to Abraham, Moses, and David. And that's yours by faith. So it's a demonstration of the power of the gospel to save sinners. And so remember how those signs are communicating something else? Well, part of what is curious about the human condition is that we get very distracted by signs. And I don't know why that is. It's, it's, I mean, I do the same thing. But I think about it, and it doesn't make sense. Because all of these signs, the things that we read about in Acts, and we're like, whoa, that's crazy, that would be cool. They were just pointing to something that we've all lived by faith. Right? Like the greatest sign that you can have that what Jesus said is true is that you are believing that you are able to be reconciled to God, that you have received the gift of faith, and that you are held in that relationship with him by his grace. And so the message that he is saying is much greater, and that was attested, it can be summarized as what theologians and what we should understand as a covenant of grace It's a fulfillment of what was first promised to Abraham. And a covenant is just a promise. It's an attestation. It is um, God promising to do something and then doing it. And part of what keeps us anchored to Christ, part of what keeps us from drifting are what are known and described by Scripture as means of grace. And so this is where we have to get a little bit practical, because so far it's like, okay, we, we've learned that we're adrift. We've learned that like drifting is bad. It's drifting towards destruction. How do we anchor ourselves? How are we anchored to Christ? What does that look like? And that's the beautiful part of how God works with us, is he understands that need, and he gives us what we need. And Another way of describing those are means of grace. They're the means of grace that the author is pushing his audience into by saying, 
pay much closer attention to that salvation. Pay much closer attention to that covenant, that relationship. How do we exist in that covenant? Well, we meet Jesus in his word, right? That's a means of grace. One of the ways that we can pay attention to it is by soaking in it. And here's what I want to encourage you with, because you can read the Bible and read it and know a lot of things and be really smart and not approach it as a means of grace. You can approach it as something to be conquered. You can approach it as something that you need to figure out instead of something that's figuring you out, something that's conquering you. And so, yes, read Scripture. Yes, soak in it. Yes, meditate on it. But do it with a spirit of a drifter, of somebody who is drifting and is in need of a Savior. When you approach Scripture like that, it will change how you see it. Because it won't just be information. It'll be lifeblood. It's a message of eternal life. And your soul will awaken. And you'll be anchored to Jesus in it. Another means of grace is prayer. Right? If the word is how we receive from God, prayer is our ongoing relationship with him in that word. So these two aren't separate. Like, we shouldn't see them as separate categories. The word is an essential component of prayer. You are praying the promises of the word as you pray them. But if you are not praying, if you are neglecting prayer, if you're neglecting to go to God in prayer, then you're not paying attention and you're adrift. You're paying attention to something else. Some other conversation is guiding your life. And so don't neglect that. Pay attention to it. Meet Jesus in prayer. He will anchor your soul in that. And then finally, worship. Yes, Sundays, what we're doing right now. But more than that, worship is described by Paul in Romans as basic obedience in your life, as a pouring out of yourself, as being a living sacrifice, as obeying the Lord with everything that you do. And that is your spiritual worship. And that's a means of grace. That will keep you connected to your anchor. That will keep you from drifting because Jesus will meet you in your life. And again, these are not like abstracted categories. These all go together. Word, prayer, worship. All of them work together to hold you to Christ. And this is how you will finish that race. This is how you will persevere to the end. It's how you will reach that final destination. Hebrews 6, I want to read this to you because um, he kind of picks this image back up. And it would be a shame to not see this, to not make it explicit, because there's nothing that says, oh, Jesus is the anchor of your soul in just chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. But explicitly in chapter 6, verse 19, talking about that covenant promise that Jesus gives, he delivers as his message. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's an eternal hope that's anchored in God's presence. And Jesus is the anchor of our souls to that hope. And so pay attention to it. Don't neglect it. Push into those means of grace. Live your life for it. Focus on it. Don't get distracted. Because the flowers fade and the grasses wither, but the word of God endures forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, (laughs) that we have received this message of salvation that even though we drift, that you save the drifters and that you don't let any of us float off into the abyss, that you've given us practical ways of connecting to your Son, that you've given us this body, that we aren't doing this alone, but that we're helping each other do it, Lord, that we're in community, that we are pursuing you together just as you have first pursued us. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would not be adrift, that that we would be anchored to you, that we would remember what is of first most importance, and that is that you are our God and we are your people through the blood of your Son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.